Thank you. Love you. We think separated at birth, right? All right. I'll work on that. Yeah. Daryl, the stunt double. Hey, how are you? Great. Good to see you. I really enjoyed that singing. It was wonderful. But I was thinking, I have to confess, as the singing was going on, I was thinking about that old movie tune. We're having a heat wave, a tropical heat wave. I mean, it's 17. Is this great or what? Wow, I got to, I had to wait for my rental car tonight or this afternoon when I came in and there was a guy there and he had a sweater on and he was holding his bags and they were waiting on his rental car and he goes, man, it's cold. And I said, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. He said, are you kidding? I'm from Florida. And I said, yeah, in that case, it's really cold. I'm glad to be back. You know, when you get invited back something, I don't know whether I... I've said this before, but when I was a, just a young guy and, and, and going into the ministry, I had a, a pastor who was very influential in my life, really my spiritual father, and uh, he said, son, if you grow up and become a preacher, if they invite you back, they must have liked you. <laughs> and I, I think that's true. Uh, I, I found him to be honest and forthright, so, uh, and it's an honor uh, always to come back. So I am delighted to be here. A lot of things have happened since I was here last. We are actually starting to film this movie on uh, January the 26th. Uh, with, uh, and you're the first group I've had a chance to talk to about this. Because it was announced yesterday. Yeah, you know, it's all going on all the time, but you can't, there are deadlines. You can't say anything about it until everything comes together and all the, uh, the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted. And yeah, yesterday morning at... Uh, 7 uh, Eastern Time, uh, we were able to release the information. So um, a guy named Hayden Christensen is uh, playing me. Uh, if you know anything about the Star Wars movie, uh, he is um, Anakin Skywalker, and which means my kids now call me Darth Preacher. <laughs> and um, Eva is being played by uh, Kate Bosworth. Kate was on The Tonight Show last night, as a matter of fact. And uh, so she's going to play Eva, and uh, all the other cast is falling into place. We're still looking for stunt doubles. And uh, <laughs> uh, the music is going to be done by uh, a guy who probably, you know, he's just getting started in the business. Uh, Michael W. Smith is going to do the music. So we think it's going to be good. And uh, it'll be released probably in, uh, if not later, October, early November. That's our target date. So pray for us. We're working with a lot of people who are not believers. And so this is, a, this is kind of not only a ministry opportunity when it reaches the theater, it's a ministry opportunity for a lot of very influential people who have little or no belief at all. And so uh, that's kind of where I'm at. And so I covet your prayers as we, we kind of get ready for that. Uh, and get into it. I'm, I'm actually meeting with um, Hayden uh, day after tomorrow. He wants to meet me. He said, I know it's a little weird to have someone play you. I said, yes, absolutely. It's a little weird. He said, so I want to sit down with you and, uh, and talk to you. I said, I'll be glad to do it wherever you want to meet. So uh, pray for that meeting too. I'll find out a little bit more about him and uh, where he is spiritually on Monday. 
I want to show you some books, and the reason that is some things have happened since I was here last. Uh, I, my, there's a new book out. Uh, well, actually, that doesn't show the new book, but uh, we have a new book out by my wife. And uh, after, you know, 10 years, people kept really nagging her about, we want to know how you got through this. We want to know what happened when they called you at the, at the office or at your, your classroom when you were teaching and said, you need to come to the office immediately. Um, and she's walking down there going, what on earth has happened? And she finds out that um, I've been in a horrific accident and our lives would never be the same again. This is her book, A Walk Through the Dark, How My Husband's 90 Minutes in Heaven Deepened My Faith for a Lifetime. Uh, if you know anybody who's going through a dark night, or trying to find a way to get through it, or they're having to take care of a lot of things beyond themselves. This is a great book on how to take care of yourself while you're taking care of other people. And I'm very proud of her for this. I always want to be married to a famous author. And uh, now I am. I'll talk about her a little bit later on. Uh, but the other books, uh, the, the, the new book that we have out is Getting to Heaven in Paperback. The last time I was here, it had not been released. And uh, so instead of $21, it's $15. It's the same book. I thought that was pretty cool. So that's the last book I've released. On a, it's a book about how to live on the way to heaven. Uh, based on the premise, if you know where you're going, shouldn't you be having a better trip on the way? And the one beside that is heaven. I'm going backwards. Heaven is real. That is a book for helping people through tragedy and loss. It's a very personal book, very close to my heart. Uh, I had to try to figure out how to have a new life, uh, knowing I would never be the way I was before the truck hit me. And that's the book about crossing that bridge into a better life. Uh, it's the first of the year, and what better time of year to start a devotional life if you don't have one? Um, it's called Daily Devotionals, and there's one a day for three months in there. Great stories. Some of my favorite stories are in that book. And it's very short. Before you go to work or school, it probably won't take five minutes to read one of those with a prayer and the scriptures to go with it. And then the other book, of course, is the book 90 Minutes in Heaven. But it's a different book now than when I was here last. Because we went back, and after 10 years, we decided to talk about what has happened since. So there's 5,000 more words in here than there was in that other book. Uh, at the beginning, and I kind of talk about what happened since the book came out. And, uh, you know, I never really planned for my life to be for sale at Walmart. And uh, <laughs> it is. And, and, and we talk about how all that came to pass and what's happened since. And this book has, in the middle of it, a lot of pictures that nobody has ever seen before. Uh, of me traveling to Sweden and, and Puerto Rico and speaking just all over the, the world and all over this country and um, Native Americans. It, it's, um, we just want to bring you up to date and so that's what that is. And it also has a whole section in the scriptures and, and uh, some of my favorite sayings about heaven and prayer and hope in the back of it. A lady walked up to me with this book not long ago, uh, the old version of it, and she's holding it like this, really clutching it. And she walks up to me at the book signing table at a church, and she leans down, and she didn't say, hello, how are you, good to see you. She leaned down, this is the first thing she said, you have to listen closely. She said, you sent me this book in jail. I said, yes, ma'am, we send a lot of books to people who are incarcerated. 
That's the only way they can get them, you know, you can't take them something. So we send it to them directly and they allow us to do that. She said, well, you sent it to me. I was on the lowest limb I've ever been on in my life. You see, I was in jail for DUI. I, I had been arrested for the fifth time for driving while intoxicated. I didn't have any community service left. I didn't have any other options. They took me directly to jail. And I was in jail and I didn't know where I was. Now you have to keep in mind this lady's in her 60s. She says, I didn't know if I was ever going to get out of jail because I couldn't get over this alcoholism. And uh, in jail, you know, I couldn't have any alcohol, so I, I had to stop and think about it. And I had to really kind of focus on finding a different life than the one I'd been living for so long, really the miserable life I'd been living for so long. And so I, I heard about your book, and I, I wrote you, and I asked for it, and you sent it. And I read it, and she says, Mr. Piper, it just... This is what I needed. I, I, I couldn't go on the way I was. I knew I couldn't, and I had to find a new normal, and I did. And, and I, I wanted to come and tell you that, and thank you for sending me in jail. And I, I want to ask you to pray for me. I said, yes, ma'am, I'll be glad to pray for you. She said, because two weeks from today, in this church where I'm standing right now, I'm going to start leading a recovery group for alcoholics. And I just want your prayers. And I said, who better? than you. I, I, I just, I remain amazed by how many folks, all of us really to a greater or lesser degree, are looking for hope. You know, we're, we've gone through a tough time. Holidays sometimes are some of the most joyous times of the year. Sometimes they're just one of the most painful and difficult times of the year. Look around. So here we are at the beginning of another year. It's a chance. You know, when God keeps making years, I guess he intends for it to keep going for a while at least. So here's your chance. And I want to talk about that tonight. I want to, I want to talk about miracles. Uh, I, I enjoyed seeing that video from Mark. He, he, his publisher is my publisher. And I've, uh, I've been to all those places. I'll, I'll mention that in, in a moment. But you know, and there's no substitute. I, I'm planning to go back in May again to Israel uh, if... The lid doesn't blow off between now and then. You never know what's going to happen. And um, when you're walking in those places or you're going across the Sea of Galilee or you're doing all these things, it's just really mind-boggling. And he's focusing on prayer because the Bible does. And he's focusing on, focusing on miracles because the Bible does. And so we're going to kind of do that uh, tonight, uh, focus on miracle and answer prayers. Jesus was in the upper room and he was about to be arrested and tried and executed. Uh, in, in Jerusalem, the upper room is, um, is above David's tomb. I mean, there's David's tomb, and then above it is the upper room. It's really above David's tomb. So you can imagine how holy this site is. There's a room downstairs in David's tomb that's filled with Jewish people, and they're all saying prayers, and because David's tomb. And upstairs are usually Christian people who are in the room, uh, that is the, believed to be the place where Jesus had the Last Supper. Now, all of you are going to have a Last Supper one of these days. The death rate here on earth is 100%. You know, you're not going to get out of this alive. I mean, there's one option for you to live without dying. And that's if Jesus comes back while you're alive. And you're ready. That's the only way you're going to get out of death. Now, I'm not trying to frighten you. I'm just trying to be realistic here. Well, Jesus was going to die. He gets it. He understands it. And so he's about to die. I don't 
none of the other guys knew this. Now, they'd follow him around for three and a half years, so to say they're close would be an understatement. These guys loved each other. They lived together. You know, I mean, they were, they were just constantly together all the time. So they knew each other's hearts. But they did, and they believed that he was the son of God, but they couldn't know what that really meant until the, the whole thing unfolded. So here he is. He's at the table. They're having the Passover. The food is being passed around, the same elements that are still passed around for Passover. And, uh, and they're passing them around. And so they all knew this. They've been through this ritual over and going, really, really every year of their life. And so it's not rote, but it is very significant. They're passing around. And he's looking in their eyes. It's different that night because there's a tension in Jerusalem. There's a lot of people in Jerusalem who want to get rid of him. I mean, they want to kill him. They want to at least arrest him and throw him out of town. Uh, he's saying things that are very controversial. He's, 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 really kind of, he's really kind of overturned the apple cart because there had been a faith that had been given to the Jews and, and they, they prospered with it for so long, but then they began to get off the trail. And, and if you, were, you, know, you read the Old Testament, you'll see this happen over and over again. I, I heard a, a scholar say one time, life is nothing but falling into and out of grace with God. So they're out. And uh, God's not pleased. So he sent his son to take care of this. And boy, did he ever. But I mean, now it's the crucial point. They're getting ready to arrest him. The guys don't know this, but they are upset. They're disturbed. They're scared. Because they hear the murmuring in town about what everybody says about Jesus. And they love him. They don't want people saying stuff like that. And they're afraid for their own selves. As far as we know, all of them except one was eventually martyred himself. I mean, hung upside down. I mean, they had all kinds of terrible things eventually happen to them. And they were following him anyway. Isn't this great? They walk into the room. I have a sermon on this, and I'm not going to preach it. But they walk into the room, and they didn't, nobody washed their feet. If you, if you look in John uh, chapter 13, he, he, they, they walk in, and nobody washes their feet, which is a tradition. Everyone has to have their feet washed. I mean, you know, they had really dirty feet. Because they walked around with sandals and sand and sweat. And so nobody did this. And Jesus gets up without saying a word and starts washing all their feet. Well, they're just completely blown away by this. I mean, they know he's the son of God. He's down washing their feet. And they're really kind of somewhere between embarrassed and put off. Like, you can't do this. In fact, um, one of them says, why don't you just give me a bath? You know, at least it'll mean like a bath. It won't be just washing my feet. He was trying to make it lesser of a kind of an embarrassment. And, and Jesus finishes this whole thing and says, you don't understand what I'm doing now, but you will. And they kind of got in an argument about who was going to be first in the kingdom of God, who's going to sit at his right hand. And Jesus said, unless you do wash each other's feet, you're not even going to get in. Well, that's, that's literal in some ways, but it's certainly spiritual in the sense that we ought to be serving each other and we ought to be ministering to each other. And they just missed it completely after walking around with him for three and a half years. They missed it. And, and, and a couple of interesting things are happening here. The first one is this. His ministry, his, his actions, his last testament to them before he gets arrested and executed is this. Actions, not words. He doesn't even say anything about the foot washing until it's over. He's just well, I'm washing their feet, and they're just kind of like, oh, I can't believe he's doing I mean, he's washing their feet. And then he starts explaining it to them. And, of course, later on after he died and came back, then they really got it. But 
they missed the boat entirely. But you know what the good thing about this is? This is what blows me away about that scenario. This, <clears throat> he chose them anyway. Isn't that cool? I mean, they did get the job done, didn't they? We wouldn't be sitting here tonight if they hadn't. But, but they failed. Right off the bat, they failed. And not, not just slightly failed, they failed miserably. So I want to say to you tonight here at the beginning of the new year, if you failed in some mission, if God called you to something, if you were supposed to do something, and you're so kind of embarrassed by it, or you're, you're disappointed in yourself or whatever, he'll choose you anyway. And you can start tonight. Well now, they're sitting at the table and he's passing. He sees how disturbed they are. They're, they're afraid, really. So he gets up from the table. He wants to encourage them. And he knew they would need this later on. In fact, that's what this is all about. From, from John 13 through 17, it's all instructions for living. That's what that last book is up there. It's, it's about that. How do you live? How do we live on the way to heaven? And... So he says to them a word of encouragement, and I want to say it to you, because some of you fall into this category. Let not your hearts be troubled. Do you believe in God? Then believe in me, he said. In my Father's house are many mansions, or rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. And if I Go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, you will be also. And you know where I'm going and you know how to get there. If you read things that precede this and some of the stories that are in Acts and the other Gospels, you'll see that he'd been constantly getting them ready for this. But they didn't want to hear that. They didn't, want to, they didn't want to think of him gone. They didn't want to think of him dying. They just didn't want to think about this at all. And the reason we know this is because Thomas, don't you know it would be Thomas, stands up on the table and says, we don't know where you're going. And we don't know how to get there. I love Thomas. He's so us. <laughs> Jesus didn't get put out with him. He, he just calmly looks over and he says, you, you want to know how to get to heaven? I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. I found this out the hard way. I got killed on the way to church. All of you drove here tonight. Maybe you drove from work. Or you drove from somewhere here to church. Well, I was driving to church 26 years ago next week. January 18th, 1989. And I was leaving this conference center. This next picture is the gates of that conference center. And um, I'd been there for three days. Conference ended. We're all going home. Probably 200 preachers. And we're spreading out all over Texas. It's a big, big place. And so we all had a lot of room to travel. I only had to go about 130 miles from the gates, these gates of the conference center. And it wasn't sun shining nice like that. It was... It was uh, raining, and uh, it was a brutal 35 degrees. <laughs> I don't know about you, but in Texas, that's cold. We just don't have stuff for that. 
So we're, we're on the highway. It was just kind of a miserable day, really. But, you know, I'm on my way to church. I'm not thinking about the weather. And I, I've got a bunch of phone calls to return. And I'm, you know, there was a day, you know, there was a day before cell phones. Did you know this? Yeah. Yeah. I know it's kind of horrifying, but uh, for some people anyway, if you're younger, um, there was a day before cell phones. So I was going to get in my office. I was going to return calls. I had to uh, teach a Bible study that night at the church. So I, I had a full agenda. So I'm, I'm on my way. I turn to the right that day. I, instead of going to the left, which is the direction I always turn, I turn to the right. Uh, I just want to go home a different way. I'm a curious person. Hadn't been that way. Let's go this way and see what's down here. Well, <laughs> a big truck was down there, but I, I turned that way on purpose. And, uh, and I, I had to cross a big hill and then emerged out on this very large lake. Not like the one we got over here, but it's, it's, it was a big lake. And... Um, and there's an old bridge on it. Actually, the lake was made when they dammed up the river uh, that went under this old bridge to make the lake. So it's a man-made lake, but it's quite large, recreational lake. And that's the bridge I was crossing. I, I'd never been that way before. I'd never seen it before. That bridge is still there <clears throat> right now. Uh, it's not in use anymore. Uh, there's a nice four-lane highway beside it. But in those days, that was the only way to get back to uh, Houston if you went that way. That old bridge was built to honor veterans of World War I. And so uh, that's the reason they haven't torn it down. It's a, it literally is a memorial bridge to the people who gave their lives in World War I. So I'm crossing the bridge. Remember it's raining and it's cold, a terrible day. And I'm almost off the bridge coming from the opposite direction down a hill. You might not be able to see the, beyond the end of the bridge, but beyond the end of the bridge, there's a hill that just goes up like that because this was the banks of the river formerly before they made the lake. Coming down that hill is an 18-wheeler, tractor-trailer truck, and um, he's driving fast. He's very unfamiliar with that area, and uh, he, was he didn't know there was a hill there, so he came down the hill, he's driving fast. A car pulls out at the opposite end of that bridge from a boat launch down there. It's a recreational lake. And so this guy going down the hill, uh, probably about 60, 65, speed limit there is 45, he has a car pull out in front of him. Well, he's not going to stop that truck going downhill that fast. It's just not going to happen. So he's got two options. He could, well, three, really. He could hit the car. He could go into the lake if he went this way, or he could go this way and hope no one's coming down the bridge because his cab of his truck is face down. That superstructure is blocking his view down the bridge. So he doesn't know if there's any oncoming traffic, so he decides to do that. There was some oncoming traffic, me, and I was right in his sight, so he ran right over me. I mean, literally ran over my car like it was a speed bump. Just crushed it, shoved it up against the railing of the bridge. He went off the back, swerved back over in the lane, naturally. And he hit the car he was trying to miss. Then he hit another car. Uh, and finally brought that truck near this end of the bridge. And so it's a horrific accident. There's so much damage to the vehicles and there's so much, so many pieces of vehicles laying around that the truck and, and the bridge, the bridge is completely uh, blocked off. Well, it's the only way across that lake, and, and, uh, and so the, there's traffic now backing up in both directions. It's not a heavily traveled road, but when it's blocked, no one's traveling, and so it just starts stacking up, especially that day because I'm just leaving the camp, uh, the retreat center, and there's all those pastors who are leaving behind me. I left about 11.30 that morning. It's about 11.45 now on the bridge. They're all backed up. 
Well, you know what happens when you have this something up there stopping you. I think, I think honestly, having traveled to all 50 states and, and spoken in all those places, I think the United States is under construction. <laughs> I really do. I mean, you can't go any direction. It's like the orange signs. It's like, here they go. Here we go. I'll just get up to some speed. I'm thinking, all right, I'm going to get there. No, it's construction. Well, there, was, uh, there wasn't construction, but it was blocked. So the people are now leaving their cars and they're walking up. There's not even enough space to turn around your car and go back the other direction if one lane of traffic is stopped. There was just a complete drop off of the railings. So the people are walking up there like, what is going on? Why are we stopped here? One of the people who walked up there was a guy named Dick Onorecker. And his church was north of Houston. Mine was south of Houston. He had about 100 miles to go. I had about 130. We never met before. I did get to hear him speak that day at the conference center. He was a keynote speaker. He and his wife, because they founded a church, and they were telling us how they did it. Fascinating story there in Houston. So he and his wife walk up to the bridge, and they see all this. And obviously when they get up to the, where they ran over my car and the other two cars, it's really bad. And uh, he walks up to the one of the policemen and says, Officer, I don't hate to bother you, but I'm a preacher. I would like to pray for anybody here who needs prayer. I, I would like to pray for them, if I can do that. And the policeman said, well, that's very nice, but nobody needs prayer. Everyone actually is okay, believe it or not. The truck driver is okay. The drivers of those two cars are okay. And this man, sir, over here in the red car, is dead. He didn't make it. So there's no one to pray for. And when the policeman said that, God spoke to that preacher. Now, I think God is doing a lot more speaking than we are listening. But he was speaking that day, they, they, and this guy's listening. Because God said something very profound. <laughs> Pray for the man in the red car. Well, that was not part of his theology. You know, never in his life had he considered praying for dead people. Um, maybe hopeless, but not dead. But he knew God was speaking to him, so he was obedient, which, of course, is what God is always interested in. You know, if we only did things we understood, we wouldn't do very much. I always, get kind of, I always get kind of buffeted from time to time by people who say, well, you know, if I could just see God, if I could just, if I could just see Jesus, if I could just do this, then I would believe. And I'm thinking to myself, have you ever looked at your hydraulic brake systems in your car? And they'll say, you know, sometimes I'll actually say that. And I'll say, no. I said, well, then why do you use your brakes? I mean, how do you know it's going to work? Well, I mean, let's face it, sometimes it doesn't work. But not very often we use them all the time. You'll use them on the way home tonight. You don't have to understand a thing about hydraulic brake systems. By faith, you will use them. So we do faith things all the time without seeing them. So it makes that argument just a little bit meaningless. But... Anyway, uh, he, he got in the car by faith. God told him to pray for the man in the red car, so he gets permission, gets in the car, and he examines me under the tarp. Now, I had been covered up with a tarp. Uh, it was such a horrible sight in the car. Obviously, the windows were all uh, knocked out of the car. Uh, the roof is kind of caved in, and you could plainly see a body in the car and pieces of me all over the place. There were actually pieces of the, this arm on the on the bridge right beside my car. So he's looking at a horrible sight, and he can see that I've, I'm plainly 
dead. But he can also see that the only thing I didn't break is my right arm. And it is the only thing I did not break in the accident. So that's where he put his hand. Now he's coming in from behind. He can't come in the front or the side. When you see the picture of the car, you'll understand why. So he came in from behind, and he, and he puts his hand on my right shoulder. He is now covered up with the same tarp that I'm covered up with. He's in the car, not exactly with me, because he's reaching in through the back, through the back window. And he's praying for me. Uh, this picture here, I'm actually in the car at that point, and he's behind me under the tarp praying for me. Because this happened, this picture was taken a little bit long, because this, this is uh, from a town, Huntsville, Texas, that's uh, probably 35 miles away. It took a little while for the newspaper photographer to get out there, so this is a little bit later picture. But you can see that the car was sitting up on the curb of the bridge. If you go to that bridge today, you can still see where the car was sitting up on that curb. Well, he's praying for me because God told him to, but he's not the only one praying for me by that time. Because when they uh, examined me and found my identification, they wanted to get in touch with somebody. And uh, they called my home first. And, um, and of course, nobody was there. Eva was teaching school. Uh, she was supposed to be with me in that car that morning. She was supposed to attend this conference. She's, she taught school for 34 years. She is now retired. And she is the hero of the story. Not me. She can't be reached. Uh, and they don't know she's a teacher, so they don't know what school to call. So when they can't do that, they called the church. Because they did find my business card. So they knew I was going to South Park Church in Alvin, Texas. So they called the church. And the, you know the receptionist answered the phone, South Park Baptist Church. Uh, do you have a, I won't say my whole name because I don't usually use my full name. In fact, I use it sometimes when I don't want somebody to know I'm in a hotel because people are coming to the hotel to find me. You know, they want a book signed. And uh, believe, it, believe it or not, people do try to track you down so they can meet you. So I'm not, uh, they, they call my, my full name and they, they tell the church, do you know someone by this name? And they said, well, yeah, we know somebody by that name. He's on his way to church. And uh, right now, he's a pastor here. And they said, well, we have some, some very uh, disturbing news. Mr. Piper has been in a terrible accident on the way to church. And we're not at liberty to talk about his condition. We need to talk to one of his relatives. Well, you know, his, he, his kids are at school in one school, and his wife's at another school. And Well, if you could give us those numbers, but uh, we just wanted to let you know that he's been in a terrible accident. Well, that was on my way there. So... They hung up the phone and someone says, Don's been in a terrible accident. They start asking around. They said, well, we've got to start praying right now. He's on his way here to lead a prayer meeting. We need to have one right now. And so someone says, well, let's not just keep this to ourselves. Let's get the Houston phone book out and start calling churches in the Houston phone book. That's a lot of churches, six million people. So they just started ripping out pages and handing them out. And people are getting on phones and they're calling churches to tell them that I have been in a wreck on the way to church. Everybody agreed to play. I mean, pray for me. I mean, it you know, started with Antioch United Methodist and went down to Zion Lutheran. Everybody in the, everybody they called said, yes, we'll pray. Hey, you know, we're in this together. Amen. You're going to be really excited when you get to heaven and find out there aren't any denominations. <laughs> Thank God for that. Well, anyway, they're, they're all praying for me. I mean, thousands of people. And, and it didn't just stay there in Houston. It started going to neighboring states and it started going around the world. I mean, good news travels fast, but bad news 
it's like the speed of light. I mean, it just started going across the country. And suddenly, tens of thousands of people are praying for that preacher in that car who's been in a terrible wreck on his way to church. They don't know I'm dead. One guy does. He's in the car. Praying over the body. And this went on for an hour and a half. That accident happened at 11.45 a.m. on the bridge. Dick Honorecker's in the car behind me praying over the body. You can see now that they've already brought the jaws of life out there uh, in case I am alive uh, because they've got to get the body out somehow and it's just kind of collapsed around me. Removing a living person is very different from removing someone who isn't. So in, in hopes of that, they've got the equipment there just in case. Dick Honorecker's behind me praying and he for a while now has been saying musical prayers like we just did up here. Songs prayers really put to music. But he's singing an old one. He's singing an old one called What a Friend We Have in Jesus. And it's an awesome song. Uh, one of my favorites always has been, Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. He's singing that song, holding onto my right shoulder, under that tarp in the dark. And as he sings it, and tens of thousands of people are praying for me around the world, I started singing it with him. He exited the car briskly. <laughs> You're laughing, but you would too, wouldn't you? Some of us a little faster than others, but he, he got out of the car real fast and ran over to one of those policemen standing there and said, Officer, the dead man is singing. And... Uh, he probably could have phrased that a little bit better because they didn't believe him. They thought it was his imagination or maybe it was wishful thinking on his part, but he, but he was. I remember singing with him. And uh, I didn't know who he was and I didn't know why we were singing. Uh, I was in shock, but uh, I, he was making me sing. He was making me sing to keep me conscious. So he kept singing songs that kept making me sing. It was his way to keep me conscious. So onto the tarp in the dark, I didn't know who he was. So now they're leaping into action because they know they have a live guy. They don't even have time to process, wait a minute, this guy was dead an hour and a half, now he's not. They're just working on me. These people are heroes. People who do this are heroes. I mean, they save lives. So they're in there trying to do it. This is after that, so you can see the equipment and they're, they're working on it or maybe right about that time. And because uh, the newspaper photographer was just taking a picture to go back to the, the Huntsville newspaper the next day. It was on the front page. And uh, so... Uh, and they're feverishly working uh, to try to do something and uh, try to get me out of that car. And that was very difficult. This next picture will show you how difficult that was uh, from a different view. This is the car after it is transported to uh, the wrecking yard. And uh, you can see the trajectory of the truck right over the, the left front wheel on the, uh, on the car. He just went over. Now this is a little misleading because this, the roof has been sawed off to remove me by lifting me straight up and now it's been laid back down on top of the car. Uh, but it was just crushed over like the bottom photo. You could see it was a hatchback car that was knocked off and it was lying on the bridge. So Dick Honorecker had to come in and around from there, pray for me. Horrible, I mean I had brain damage, my, my head was crushed by the collapsing um, roof of the car. Uh, I was impaled on the steering wheel, as we'll see in this next photo. Uh, the steering wheel had turned up like this and went right into my chest. This is before airbags. And it just went into my chest. There's very little room left between the seat 
in my chest and uh, they, they moved it back electronically so they could get me out. But the dashboard has collapsed on my legs, just like, just like a guillotine. It just came down on both of my legs at the same time. But I had slid in the seat a little bit so it didn't hit me at the same place on my legs. It, it hit on the right leg at the knee and the knee was just disintegrated. Uh, but it hit right above my left knee, about an inch above my left knee because I turned in the seat a little bit. And when it did that, it literally cut that leg in two. Really, it just imploded four inches of the femur, the largest bone in the human body, if you've ever seen an adult femur, was, was just ejected from the car and never found. It must have went over the railing of that bridge into the water. Uh, and so it, it's this, my leg is connected by a little tissue on the back of the leg, and it's just sagging over on the floor, the bottom part of my leg. I, I don't remember seeing the truck, but I must have had a little inkling that it was coming because I had put my hand up in the air like this. And, and the moment I put my hand up in the air like this, that's the truck ran over me and it took the arm into the back seat of the car by dislocating it here and going over the seat. And so this, this hand was actually lying on the back seat of the car. Um, Dick Honorecker had to reach around this hand to put his, his arm on my right shoulder. The things he must have seen. So uh, they're trying to get me out of there and they're trying to restore me. They're trying to s stabilize me. I mean, I haven't I've been dead. And, and, and I mean, for an hour and a half, it was impossible. Absolutely impossible. Absolutely. But you know, you don't bleed out when your heart is not beating. So my heart wasn't beating. I didn't lose all my blood. That would have killed me. That would have caused the brain damage. Although my wife still thinks I have brain damage. And <laughs> I'm getting to the point where I think I do too. Because uh, I can't remember anything. But uh, it... It, I remember this. Uh, you, you never forget stuff like this. So they, they finally got me out and they put me in that ambulance that was in that prior picture and they're racing me to the nearest hospital. That, that was a hospital in Trinity, which is a little town about 15 miles away. And, and it's just a little one-story hospital. It's really not more than a clinic. Well, they didn't even take me out of the ambulance there because they can't really handle anything approaching my kind of injury. So the doctors came out and said, you need to get him to Huntsville immediately, which is a regional hospital. It's a, it's a pretty big hospital. So I'm taken there, and there I'm actually removed from the ambulance. I, I'm stabilized. They're doing, it's feverishly trying to stabilize this and cut off the circulation on that and do this and analyze me and they know I'm in grave condition and they're already making arrangements to have me transported to the nearest level one trauma center. That is in Houston. There's three or four of them down there. And this particular one is called Memorial Hermann Hospital, a very worldwide hospital. When Congressman Giffords was shot in Arizona, they brought her to this hospital because her husband's an astronaut. And uh, so it's, it's a world-class hospital. There's some great, great hospitals in Houston, the medical complex. And so I'm brought there, except they didn't bring me the way they wanted to. They wanted to airlift me from Huntsville, which is 85 miles away, to Houston with all deliberate speed. But because the weather was so bad, that couldn't happen. The weather, helicopters can only fly by line of sight. They don't, they don't because of the way they, they work, they have, to have, they have to be able to see where they're going. Um, and, and they can't. So they, they're grounded. All the helicopters are grounded. So that meant I had to be transported by car, by ambulance, down 85 miles of I-45 uh, to Houston. And uh, so they're making arrangements for that. I'm in that ambulance. I'm going to Houston now. 
And by this time, I know what's happened. By this time, the shock is worn off. By this time, every one of those broken bones, every one of those, every one of those contusions and cuts and embedded glass, they're screaming at me. I didn't know you could hurt like that. But I did. I told the EMT that was taking care of me, a very nice young man, I, I said through my oxygen, I said, is there any way you could give me something for pain, please? He said, Mr. Piper, no, I'm sorry. I can't give you anything else for pain. I've given you all I can. If I give you anything else for pain, you'll just become unconscious. That's what I'm looking for. I want to become unconscious. <laughs> I mean, haven't you ever wanted to be unconscious? <laughs> he said, I know that doesn't make any sense, but that's what our orders are from Houston. They don't want you to lose consciousness in this ambulance because I may not be able to get you back again. He knew the story. I didn't care about his explanation. I was just hurting. And, and, and to the point that I kept hearing screams in the ambulance, like horrible screams, blood-curdling screams. And I'd had enough of those too. So I turned to him, I said, I hate to disturb you again. I said, but there's any way you can make those people stop screaming. It's very disturbing to me. And this time, he actually put his hand on my unbroken shoulder, the only thing I didn't break. He's got IVs all over it, but he's got his hand on my shoulder. He didn't want to touch anything else. He looked down at me, and I could see tears in his eyes. These people see horrible things, but it doesn't mean they're not affected by them. He's holding my shoulder, and he's looking down at me, tears in his eyes, and he said, Mr. Piper, I'm so sorry to have to tell you this, but you're screaming. There's no one else in the ambulance but the driver and me. It's you. That was the point that day that I knew I would never be the same again. We arrived there at that hospital, that emergency room right there, at 6.15 that night. Well, an accident had happened at 11.45 in the morning. And I would be in a hospital bed from then on for 13 months, and I would have 34 operations to try to put me back together again. We talked about the last time they were here. I, I think there's two inescapable, unequivocal things that came out of this. And, that, and those are these. Number one, I do believe God answers prayer. And number two, I do believe that God is still in the miracle business today. So here we are starting a new year, and I think this is very important. You can clap for that. God likes it. You know, in the same discourse where he starts out washing their feet and telling them about not being troubled, he says this. If you ask it in my name, I will do it. There are the actual words. Go back. Don't look at that. <laughs> Go back. There it is. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. I don't know how you can get any more direct than that. I want to thank you guys back there for keeping up with this. They hadn't seen this before I came tonight. Thank you. you. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. I think that means what it says. Now, I will say this. You, you probably are going to ask for stuff you're not going to get because it's not the right question. <laughs> it's not the right answer. It's, not, it's the right answer, but it's not the right question. I mean, sometimes we need to ask God what we need before we ask for what we need. I mean, we need to get the wisdom of God. In fact, that's what that means in the middle when it says, in my name, it means God is included in this. 
But I guarantee you this, if you've asked for something and the answer was no, that was the right answer. If I'd have gotten some of the things I've asked for in my life, it would have been a disaster. I know now because I can see it in hindsight. I, I, I found this though. As a rule, I always get better answers than I'm asking for. You know, I'm kind of aiming low with my prayers and God answers them way up here. I mean, they certainly did that day, all the people who were praying for me. I mean, they were just saying, well, we need him to live. We hope he lives. We hope he can function somewhere. We hope he doesn't have brain damage. We hope, and they were just praying. And I didn't just not have all that stuff. I walked in here tonight. And when I'm finished, I'm walking out of here. So God answers prayers. You know, way up here. Yeah, so I, I'm a testimony to that. I was speaking at a church in Houston called Second Baptist Church. It's a very, very large church. Ed Young is the pastor of this church. He's got a national TV show. And I was speaking at a banquet. And this is a big banquet hall. And there were, I think there were 600 tables. And so there's about eight people around every table. So it's a big crowd. But like about twice as many people showed up for the banquet as they had sold tickets for. So, you know, a lot of people didn't get the chicken that night. So they're standing around the walls. In fact, that's a miracle, isn't it? People came to church. They didn't get the chicken and they stayed anyway. I mean, is this not a, is this not a miracle? I think it is. So they're all, they're all over the place. And, and this right off the stage, there's a table right here. And about to this point in my speaking about answered prayer, that God answers prayer and, and don't give up and keep praying, the phone rings down here on the one of the table, you know, cell phones. And the guy is very embarrassed. He's turning off the sound and he's looking at the phone and he kind of rocks back when he sees it. Like he's just gotten some shocking information. I thought he's going to get up and leave. In fact, I was prepared for him to get up and leave. He didn't. He just put the phone down and he stayed there like this. So I thought, wow. So I finished the service and we had, when it was, God moved and it was just a glorious time and I went out and signed books like I will after this service. And I was in the parking lot with my son-in-law, Scott. I'm going to talk about miracles in a minute, but if you don't believe in miracles, consider this, that that your daughter can marry a son-in-law who is not worthy of her and they can have the most beautiful children on earth. Is that not a miracle? I think that's a miracle. Regrettably, my, my mother-in-law used to feel the same way about me, but it's just the way it works. So my son-in-law, Scott, standing there, and we're talking, and suddenly, it was a foggy night, out of this mist comes that guy. He with his hand out like this. And I looked at him and I said, hi. He said, I just wanted to stop and I want to come back here and tell you something. I said, is everything okay? Oh, yeah, he said, it's really okay. I said, uh, what happened? I saw the phone call. I thought you'd leave. I almost did, he said, but I, I just needed to stay because you were talking about what was happening. And I said, what happened? He said, you were talking about praying and praying fervently. If you ask it in my name, I will do it. Just praying fervently. And at that moment, I got a phone call from my best friend. We've been best friends since we were little boys. This guy was probably in his 50s. He said, we grew up together. I was his best man in his wedding. He was the best man in my wedding. He has three children. I have three children. And our children are very close to each other too. And his oldest is 21 and mine's about 22. It's just, we just had a great life together, his family and mine. And we prayed for our children before they were born that they would come to know God at a, at a young and understanding age and they all have except his son, his oldest. He's a fine boy. 
Uh, he's, he's, a, he's an honest boy. He's just got so many fine qualities about him. But he just never could wrap his arms and his, his mind around Jesus. And we continue to pray for him and we continue to love him. We just, you know, you can't force somebody to do that. Uh, but we just, we love him and we hope to see him in heaven. And as you said that, my best friend called me on the telephone to tell me his son had just given his heart to Jesus at that very moment. You tell people, when you talk about prayer, he said, just keep praying. Amen. Never give up. We've been praying for that boy over 21 years. And tonight was the night he gave his heart to Jesus. I believe in answered prayer. I am an answered prayer. I know it works. I didn't have anything to do with my survival. If I'd had a choice, I would have stayed there. I wouldn't have come back here. Even as warm as it is. I would have stayed there. If you've been there, you don't want to be here. But they prayed and God said, yes, I believe in prayer. Hey, let me ask you a question. What do you think would happen around this part of Illinois if you prayed for people who aren't ready to go to heaven with the kind of passion Dick on a record did over my dead body in the car? I'll tell you what would happen. You don't have enough brown pews. This area would go crazy. There'd be people lined up to come in here. Yeah, because people would just making, be making reservations in heaven all the time. They would be getting right with God. They would be trying to live for him. They would be trying to go out and rescue the perishing and care for the dying. That's what they would be doing. And that's, that's a result of prayer. You got somebody you care about that's not ready to go to heaven. When's the last time you prayed for them? Like the guy did over my dead body. Well, you don't have to have that kind of passion. I was dead, but aren't they dead? Spiritually? I believe in miracles, too. I, I did have brain damage. I was impaled on the steering wheel. I had all kinds of stuff. You know, they took tests at Huntsville that, they, that showed all this, the, the brain damage, the internal injuries and everything. But Dick Honorecker, who had a military, uh, military, a medical background, he had a military background, too, but he was in the car. He was praying for me. He could see the blood coming out of my ears and eyes and nose, and he knew that I had injuries inside of my head. He, he could see the steering wheel impaling me. He could see the leg twisted over and lying on the floor. He obviously could see the arm. He was in the back seat and that's where it was. And he knew that these were all life-threatening injuries that even if I lived, I could still die. He knew all of that because he understood all of that. And that's what he prayed for. When I got to Herman Hospital in Houston, I didn't have any brain damage or internal injuries. That's what he'd been praying for on the bridge. I believe in miracles. I believe in answered prayer. I had a lot of miracles happen to me that day. Uh, they're kind of chronicled in the book. We could literally s still be here in the morning if I started telling you all the miracles that happened to me. So, in fact, we will be here in the morning, 9.30, won't we? Hey, bring somebody back who needs to hear about this. So, uh, all these miracles happen. I mean... I had a traffic ticket lying on the front seat of my car when I left the conference center that morning for not wearing a seatbelt three weeks before. Same car. I'm driving to help a friend. He's a preacher who got a throat surgery, and he couldn't preach, obviously, with the throat surgery, so he asked me to come and substitute him right after Christmas, because the accident happened January 18th. I'm over there at his church preaching, but on the way to the church, I'm driving through a small town, and there's lots of small towns down there, and I got pulled over by a Texas 
state trooper. And I'm thinking, what is going on? My sticker expired. I wasn't speeding. He walks up, this big burly policeman. And you know, they're, they're Texas Rangers, so they have these. And he, he looked down at me and he says, I need to see your driver's license and your, your insurance. I said, yes, sir. I got them right here. I said, what, what's going on, Pat? Uh, uh, sir, I'm, I'm, I'm on my way to church. I, I, I didn't, was I doing something wrong? You're not wearing a seatbelt. No, sir, I'm not wearing a seatbelt. I'm sorry, I, I should have, you know, plugged it in, hitched it up, did whatever I was supposed to do. I should have put it on this morning when I left the church parking lot. I'm on my way to church to preach for a friend. He had throat surgery and he can't preach. I'm on my way to preach for him. And he looked down at me and he said, I'm on my way to give you a ticket for not wearing a seatbelt. <laughs> and he did. And it was lying on the car beside my seat when I left that morning. In fact, since I decided to go right that day instead of left, when I glanced that way to go right, I saw the ticket and I reached down and buckled my seatbelt. Ten minutes later, I was in a head-on collision with an 18-wheeler. I got more. I believe in miracles. Look at this next phrase here. Well, I'll show you the slide after this. That's what we had to overcome. They had to physically reattach my leg, missing four inches of it. So this is the first external fixator ever applied on a femur in the history of this country. It was patented three weeks before my accident happened. So I was the first one to wear one. I wish I could be the last one to wear one. It's, it's a hor horrific device. It's, uh, I had 30 open wounds in my leg because those, those circles, the steel halos, have wires attached to them that go through you, through the bone, out the other side, and are anchored on the other side. They hold the bones in place because the bones are no longer attached. And so the only way they can hold the bones in place where the missing part is to anchor them with these devices on the outside. That's why they're called external fixators. And I wore that for a year. Um, it's anchored in the pelvis by big rods about the size of pencils that go through you and come out the other side. It, it, was, um, it was one of the worst things ever. Uh, the arm now, um, the bones in the arm are much, much smaller than the bone in your leg because it doesn't have to support your whole body weight from here up. Your arm doesn't. And so you have two small bones in your forearm and so they decided to do a transplant. They removed them from my right pelvis and they put them in my arm. All the bones in this arm came from my right pelvis. Uh, medical people have a wonderful knack for finding things you didn't even hurt and hurt that for you to fix the other stuff. All the skin on this arm came from my right leg. They took the skin off my leg. I want to tell you how they do it. It's pretty gross and they put it on my arm. So all the skin on this arm came from this leg. You'll see a picture at the end of where they took it from. So I lay in the hospital bed for uh, over a year, and then I had a couple of years of therapy and rehabilitation. I just needed a miracle. <laughs> I mean, how many infections did I get in those holes? Every day they would pour hydrogen peroxide down the holes and stuff Q-tips down there in each one of the holes. And somebody would have to come in and turn screws on those halos four times a day to make them stretch. So it just use your imagination. It was terrible. Here's the, here's the miraculous thing. This is my leg and this is my arm. So remember that. 
Look at his next verse, if you skip over the next one and go directly to that. That's the thing from the outside. I tell you the truth. At least it's up there, it's down here. There it is. All right, I tell you the truth. Anyone who has done, seen what I'm doing will do greater things than these. Yeah, that's what Jesus is saying. And, and, and the, the remarkable thing about that is the guys he's talking to there in the upper room have seen the things he's doing. They have seen him raise the dead. They have seen him give sight to the blind. They have seen him, they've seen him do all this stuff. And he's saying to them, I'm getting ready to leave you. You're going to do greater stuff than that. Isn't that a remarkable statement? And here's, what, here's, here's the really amazing thing. They did. I think God still is. Yeah. I know. I am a miracle. That lady who walked up with the book, I'm an alcoholic. I was in jail for my fifth DUI. Don't you think that's a miracle? I think it's a miracle. And God's doing some of his best stuff. Now, uh, we don't really have time for me to talk about overcoming tonight. But I had to figure out how to do that. Because I want to get around to heaven. Because hopefully we're taking some reservations tonight. Our prayer is that we will take some reservations tonight. Our prayer is that you won't walk out of one of these doors without being ready to go to heaven. And here's the bottom line reason. I got killed on the way to church. You're getting ready to leave church. What does that say? You got to be ready all the time. All the time. If you think you can get ready later, you're just playing with fire, really. Uh, you're just betting against God. I don't think that's a good bet. So, I had to figure out how to overcome this. One morning at 3 a.m., I'm lying in the hospital bed. And I think this next picture may be in that bed. I'm in the bed, and you can see where they took the skin off my leg to put it on my arm. You can see where the right leg was crushed at the knee. And you could barely see the device from another angle and the device on my arm. And that was my life. I'm a 38-year-old man in that picture who cannot do one single solitary thing for myself at all. Use your imagination, guys. So I'm, I'm in bad shape. Not just physically, emotionally, even spiritually. I just don't understand why this happened to me on the way to church. But mostly I don't understand this. Why God hasn't sent somebody here who's been through this kind of thing who could help me get through that kind of thing. You know, who, who had one of those things on it, and maybe could hold my hand and say, let me tell you what's going to happen next. I didn't care what the truth was. I just wanted the truth. I had nothing but question marks, because there weren't anything but question marks. You ever feel this way? Yeah. You ever feel like you're going through something that's just like so overwhelming to you, and so baffling, and so incredible, you're just wondering, how am I going to get through this? That's a great question. I was asking it at 3 a.m. that morning. And that arm, this one, the one I didn't break, I'm lifting up, and this is what I'm doing. I don't understand why this happened to me. Now, remember, I'm on the, third, I'm the 21st floor of this hospital. I'm up, way up in the air. All I can see out the window is other hospitals, and so I'm, I'm shaking my fist. No one's around. Nobody's in your room at 3 a.m., and so I'm shaking my fist, and this is what I'm saying. I don't understand why this happened to me. I don't understand what you're trying to teach me through this. I'm willing to know but I want to know why you can't send somebody who understands what this is like. Everybody's nice to me, and they're trying to do good things for me, but nobody understands what this is like. Why? 
And God speaks to me through some music. It's kind of like Dick on a record on the bridge. I'm listening to some music over beside the bed. You can't see it. <clears throat> this is on cassettes in those days. And he uses a couple of songs that we're actually going to put in the movie. One by a group called the Imperials, another by a guy named David Meese. And, and God speaks to the music. Here's what he says. This is not about you. It's about me. What I can do through you now, I can never do before the truck hits you. Son, you need to turn your pain into a purpose. You need to take your test and make a testimony. You need to take, you need to take the disappointment and turn it into divine appointments. Because there's going to be a lot of people after you who need this kind of encouragement. And that's what I've been doing ever since. I do a lot of things, but I think one of the things that matters to me the most is when I can walk in a hospital room to a 17-year-old boy who broke his leg in football or a young girl who had it cut off by the, by the rotor of a boat because she fell in and say, I understand how you feel. Isn't that what we want, really? Let me say this to you very intimately. God understands how you feel. You think you've lost a loved one and it's just almost so overwhelming you can hardly even think about it? God lost his only son. He gets it. He understands how you feel. Here's the good news. That same son conquered death. Yeah, he didn't stay dead. He's, he's more alive today than he ever was here. You know, Dwight L. Moody, who founded that great church here in Chicago, he, he used to say, one of these days, you're going to pick up the Chicago Tribune or the <laughs> Sun-Times, you're going you're gonna to pick it up, and you're going to read in there that I have died in the obituary section. But while you're reading that, I'll be more alive than I ever was while I was here. He's right. See, that's a miracle. I want to need some of that water over there. Thank you. I'm getting all choked up up here. Excuse me. So maybe we'll have some time in the morning. I want to explore that. I, uh, I've been knocked down, but I haven't been knocked out. And here's the difference. I'll show it to you. Bitter. Better. Let me help you understand how you feel. And I want to say this to your face. You can do that. Your house burned down? Go find somebody whose house burned down and help them. You lost your spouse? Go hold the hand of somebody who lost their spouse. One of your children left, you don't even know where they are? Find one of those. I talked to this lady whose daughter overdosed with drugs. She was so angry with God, she couldn't see straight. And incidentally, God doesn't mind if you're angry at him. He'd rather you be angry than ignore him. And she just is really furious. And after, for some reason, God speaks, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this. She came up to me and she says, I've been looking at this all wrong. I've been blaming God for taking my daughter, but she was his before she was mine. And I know he's taking good care of her, but I sure do miss her. I said, I understand. I do. She said, but I need to go see if I can help some other people who are going through this. And she founded not one, but a whole city full of support groups for parents whose kids have overdosed with drugs. She's still doing that today. You can do that. 
When the truck hit me, I was standing at the gates of heaven immediately. I didn't go down a long tunnel. There was no bright light at the end of the tunnel. I didn't have a near-death experience. You hear about those all the time. I, I don't discount them one way or the other. I didn't have one. And when you're dead an hour and a half, you're not nearly dead. It was just like that. I took my last breath on the bridge. I took my next breath at the gates of heaven. And uh, there are 12 gates of heaven. Uh, let me encourage you to read Revelation 21. It's, it's probably the richest book on heaven in the New Testament. And, and you'll find in there there are 12 gates in heaven. Of course, there are 12 tribes. So that explains why that. You may not know what tribe you're in, but you'll find out. And, and so I was there. And I'm at the gate. And I'm surrounded by people I had known and loved in life. And boy, did they look good. I mean, if you... You look nice tonight, but you're going to really look good in heaven. Uh, I, they were all familiar. I didn't see anybody I didn't know here. Well, obviously, there's a lot of people who've gone since the beginning of time until now and will continue to be born after I'm gone. Jesus delays his return. So the people I met were people who I knew during my lifetime who had preceded me in my death, and they were all expecting me. You will not sneak up on heaven. Everybody there knows who's coming. Yes, yeah, so these are the people who met me, and they were expecting me that day. And they're expecting you if you're ready to go. And uh, it was an entourage, really. It was uh, my grandfather, my great-grandmother, some teachers in here, a couple of aunts and uncles. Over here, some classmates that I had in high school that were killed at an early age. My next-door neighbor, Miss Norris, was over here. It was just a different group of people all around. And some people I wouldn't have expected to see. Not necessarily in heaven, but we really weren't that close here. But... They all had an impact on my life. So here I am meeting them, and I'm looking at my grandfather, who I call Papa. One of my great joys in life is to live long enough to have grandchildren who call me Papa. When I hear that word, it's just all over me. Because I remember my Papa. He died one night, suddenly. I rode with him in the, in the ambulance of the hospital. I, I have a lot of broken bones, but nothing hurts like a broken heart. And when Papa died, it broke my heart. I adored him. He was a carpenter. He had no formal education. He was not an educated man. I think he was a smart man because he was a carpenter. He could build stuff like this, and I saw him do it with my own eyes. When you're a little boy, you see a man build something like this, you, you think that's pretty cool. And it, and it is. And I, I wanted to be like him, and I still, as God is my witness, I'm trying to be like my Papa. But I was devastated when he died. I saw him in his casket at the funeral, you know. He was up here in the church, and he did not look good. And now I'm standing at the gates of heaven. He's there to greet me. He's extending his arms to me, and he said in a language I'd never heard before but fully understood, welcome home, Donnie. He was expecting me. And I looked down at the hands that used to hold me, and part of being really a hard laborer, he was a welder, a carpenter. I mean, that's hard labor. He lost three fingers on one hand and two and a half on the other. And when he reached his hands out to me, all of his fingers were there. I'd never seen him before. I was stunned by that. But I sure was glad to see him. And he, he seemed to be glad to see me. He was expecting me. My great-grandmother was standing beside him. She was a victim of osteoporosis on earth. She walked like this. She couldn't stand up straight. She wasn't missing her fingers like Papa. She was missing her teeth. She didn't have any teeth. She had some false teeth, which she did not like. She wore them seldom. 
one time you knew that grandma was going to be wearing her teeth was to church on Sunday mornings. In fact, sometimes it was really shocking. She has her little hat on and her dress, and she'd be going out the window, out the door, and she'd look at you and smile at you, and you're thinking like, wow, she has teeth, because you never got to see them, you know. When she smiled at me at the gates of heaven, it was the first time I ever saw her real smile. And she was about six inches taller than she was here because she wasn't, she didn't have collapsed bones. She looked good. You're going to be perfect in heaven. Just the way God wanted you to be when he made you in the first place. I mean, if you hang around earth long enough, you're going to have scars all over you. Not just physical ones, but inside. None in heaven. There's only one person in heaven with scars. Jesus. To remind us of how we got there. You won't have any on you. Isn't that great? Yeah. yeah. My next door neighbor, Miss Norris, was over here. And she took me to church when I was a little boy. My parents weren't churchgoers. And the only way I could go was with someone else. And she took an interest in me because her, her and her her husband were foster parents. They had a whole house full of kids that weren't theirs. And, they, and the characters changed all the time. But they took those kids to church every Sunday morning in a station wagon. And she told my mother over the back fence, if Donnie ever wants to go to church, you just tell him to stand by the mailbox out front. I didn't have to be told twice. I got myself dressed the next Sunday morning. I stood by the mailbox and here came the station wagon full of screaming kids. Miss Norris looked out the window at me and she said, Honey, would you like to go to God's house? And I looked up at her, and I said, yes, ma'am, I surely would. And she said, boys and girls, move over. Donnie's coming to church with us. And I climbed on the station wagon, and I knew somebody cared about me. And she met me at the gates of heaven because she helped me get there. So here's the question for you tonight. Who are you going to greet? Who's going to be there because of you? I think you can go call someone this evening. Bring them to church in the morning. Let's get serious about this. I always ask this question, why not a revival in Mount Prospect? Why not? Prayer, I mean, effort, doing the job, that's why not. But we can do that. We're all, we are equipped to do that. We are, we are able to do that. Bring somebody to church. You've got somebody you work with, you go to school with, you're related to, you live down the street from. You know they're not ready to go to heaven. Bring them to church. I guarantee you they won't walk out of here without knowing. We, you love them here. Don't you want to love them there? Yeah. They need the, the, this series that, that Mark is going to do. Wow, what a great thing for that to come and see. And, it, and it's a series. Sometimes they won't come for preaching and they won't come for that. But if they're watching a series that was like filmed in Israel, they might come for that. Just figure out what it is and bring them. And Holy Spirit will do the rest. So I just encourage you to do that. The people who met me at the gates of heaven were people who helped me get there. What a glorious reunion that was. I did move past them because I wanted to go through the gate, and it was actually quite small. It looks like the, the whole thing looks like an inside of an oyster. It's made of pearl, but the, inside, the, the entrance is like, like 23 feet thick, 28 feet, and, you, and you, it's narrow. It, one person could go in at a time. That's because we come to Christ one at a time. I mean, it's a personal decision. 
You don't get saved because your grandmother was a Baptist or your uncle was, you know, assembly. I mean, that's not going to get you into heaven. It's going to be you having a personal relationship with Jesus. It's not even going to be church membership. As wonderful as that is, it's going to be you having a personal relationship with Jesus. And so it's narrow. And so I want to go in because I could see the street boulevard running down the middle of the city. It's made of gold. You know, God can make streets out of gold. I mean, here, you know, go, go price some. They make streets out of it. And there it is. It's quite brilliant. On both sides, very, very beautiful structures. Remember when we started? Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And he used that word place on purpose because it's a place. And he said that in, in, in Revelation 21, it says that they'll have streets of gold and then the walls will be covered all kinds of precious. That there's no sun or moon in heaven. They don't need any because Jesus and God will illuminate the place with their majesty and glory. You could take it to the bank. It's that, that's the way it is. Brilliant. You'd be blinded by heaven with earthly eyes, but you won't have earthly eyes there. So I'm passing through aromas, smells that are so glorious and so perfect and so beautiful I can't even describe them. How would you describe an aroma? And I'm passing through angels. They're all over the place. Some of them are standing, but some of them, most of them are hovering. And even if you can't see them, you can hear their wings. What an amazing sound that was to hear the wings of heaven. You know, they're the ones who bear us up. And they were bringing me up. And they were all around me. You don't become an angel in heaven. Those are different beings from us. One day the angels will answer to us. Yeah, we, we, you know, they're not above us. They may be literally because they're flying above us or they're standing here beside us. I had one with me in the car that day. It's another story, but there are angels all over the place. So I'm passing the angels and now I'm moving through music. And it must be one of God's favorite things, music. And I think it, I, I used to always believe that way because I'm a very musical person. But you know what? When I've stood in a barn in Norway and had a bunch of Swedish people, or a, a barn in Norway or a fjord in Nor, uh, Sweden or a, a fjord in, Nor, in Norway, and I have them sing their native songs and I don't understand the word they're saying, and God does. Because I'm not the audience. God's the audience in authentic worship. And I, I, in different places, I've been around the world, and I'm thinking, I am a stranger here, and I don't have any idea. But you know, you can feel the spirit of it, because that's what music is. And there are thousands of songs in heaven, thousands of songs in heaven, without chaos, because they all fit together. Glorious music. I can close my eyes tonight, and I can still hear that music. I want you to hear it. And I believe God wants you to hear it too. But let me say this. Heaven is a prepared place for prepared people. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to say to your face, you're going to have to be prepared for the place. You say, I've been good, excellent. That will not get you into heaven. You'll just not be able to be good enough. It's a perfect place. We're talking about a holy God here who doesn't allow anything unholy to be in his presence. So since we're not holy and we know we're not, and God is, how are we going to get to be with him? Jesus will make us holy in the sight of God by bringing our sins to him and having him forgive them when he died on the cross. In our place, we deserve to die. He did it for us.
So, what can wash away our sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. So now I'm walking in. I've got the music in my ears, the aromas. It was just the most real thing that's ever happened to me. And I'm going through that thick wall. I'm going to merge inside. I want to, I see this hill in the middle of the city and the brightest light of all is coming from that hill. And I know that's where the Lord is high and lifted up. I could see thrones up there. And what I wanted to do is go there as quickly as possible. I wanted to, I, I wanted to just fall down at his feet and say, thank you for letting me come. Thank you. But I never got a chance. I was emerging inside with all my, my people behind me, the ones who greeted me, because I was the new guy. It, it all stopped in an instant, just as quickly as I'd been to heaven. I came back. I asked myself in that bed every day, God, why did you let me see that and take it away from me? I know now what I did not know then. So I can be in Illinois tonight and tell you to your face, heaven is real. And Jesus is the way. So we're taking reservations tonight. So I'm encouraging you to think of somebody tonight who needs to go to heaven and you're not sure at all they're going. And I want to pray for them that God will show you what to do. And I want to pray for you if you're not sure. Heaven is real. And then I'll tell you what we're going to do. We're going to have some music up here. And, I, and we'll be standing up here. And people will be happy to pray with you. Maybe you want to pray for someone. Hey, maybe you want to do this. Just come down here and kneel at one of the altars or just kneel down here and pray for your mother or pray for your, your aunt or your uncle or your coworker or your classmate. And then you can go back to your seat. I think specific prayers bring specific answers. I think the reason I was healed in the car is because Dick Honorecker was praying for my head. He was praying for my chest. He saw what he needed to pray for. That's what he prayed for and God took care of it. So you know who you need to pray for. It's even if it's you. Let's talk to God. He's talking to us. Wow, what if Dick Honorecker hadn't been obedient that day on the bridge when God said pray for the man in the red car? So obedience is what God is looking for tonight. Maybe you've been doing your own thing for a while. It's time to do God's thing. Ask him, what would you have me do? I know heaven is real, and I believe Jesus is the way. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time together tonight. Thank you for a church that does stuff like this. I want to be a part of a church like that. Maybe we've got some folks here tonight who are visiting, and truthfully, they haven't been involved very much in a church, if at all, and they've been kind of looking for a good one. Well, this is a good one here. So Lord, I pray that you'll direct them. Maybe they found a place to worship you and serve you because we ought to all be serving you. Perhaps there's someone here tonight that they could barely bring themselves to come. Maybe it's a, an emotional crisis, a physical crisis. It might even be a financial crisis. It, it's one of those kind of crises and it's overwhelmed them. And I believe they've come to the right place. I believe in divine appointments. So I'm praying for them right now. Someone here who truthfully may have been in and around churches all their life, but the truth is, deep down, they're not sure they're going to heaven at all. 
And you don't want us to doubt. You say in your word that we can be sure of our salvation. Sure of it. Just as sure as we're sitting here now. And you want us to be. So maybe someone here is cloaked in doubt. Tonight, Lord, I pray that you will help them doubt their doubts and begin to serve you in a radical way. And at this moment, I want to talk to anybody here who's not sure that when you die, and you will, you are going to heaven. If you're not sure, here's what you need to do. And we're going to all do it together in a second. You just need to bow your head and your heart and say to God in your own words, God, I, I know that I'm lost. And I certainly know that I'm a sinner because I can think of things untold that I have done that would displease you. They were just wrong. And I'm, I'm not only sorry for them, I would like to change beginning tonight. I want to turn from that way of life and I want to turn to the way of life that you made for me when you, when you birthed me, when you gave, when, you, when I was in your mind before you even created me. I want to live that life because I know that's the life that will bring happiness and joy. So come into my heart, Lord, and save me from my sins. I am a sinner. And I want to pray, Lord, that you will guide me now from this day forward. I want to live for you. So all together, if you've, if you've prayed a prayer like this a hundred times, you know, I love praying this prayer because in my own heart, I know it reminds me of the decision I made when I was a 16-year-old boy in a church service like this, and I knew they were talking about me. What if I hadn't prayed that prayer when I got killed on the bridge? So right now, just say these words. You don't have to use my words, but, but this, is the, this is the way to heaven. Dear God, I believe in you. I know that Jesus died on the cross for me. And I'm asking you to come into my heart, Lord, and save me from my sins. I am a sinner. And I don't want to live this way anymore. When you come into my heart, Lord, I want you to forgive my sins. And help me to live for you from this day forward. I want to belong to you. And I want the world to know it. Oh, Lord, thank you for saving my soul. And now I want to live for you until you call me home. Help me to be found faithful until that day. The Bible says if you say it and you mean it, the angels in heaven are singing your name right now. Your name is being written in the registration book up in heaven called the Lamb's Book of Life. They know you're coming. And they're very excited about it. But we're all going to pray that you live a faithful life until that day. One of the ways you can be faithful is in a moment when we stand... Just come down and share that with someone down here. You know, if you had something really exciting happen in your life, you wouldn't want to keep it a secret. You'd be happy to talk about it. Come tell one of us so we can pray with you and rejoice with you. It would be our honor and pleasure. If you just prayed that prayer for the first time in your life and meant it, and you know now that Christ has come into your heart and given you new life, with every head bowed, I'm just going to ask you to just raise your hand and say, yes, I've asked Jesus into my heart. I know where I'm going. I've given my heart to Jesus. Yes. Thank you. 
Thank you. Thank you. Now in a moment as we stand, use this opportunity, would you please, to just come down and share it with one of the prayer warriors down here so they'll know how to pray for you tonight. And we'll rejoice with you. If you have another prayer need, if you want to come down and just kneel and pray for your, your dad or your son or your sister or your aunt or anyone that you care about that you're not sure is going to heaven, do that too. Whatever God's telling you to do, do like Dick on a record did on the bridge. Just be obedient and it'll be right. In Jesus' name. Let's stand together. Be in an attitude of prayer. If you need to come and pray, come right on. If you made a decision to trust the Lord, come share that with us. We're not going to embarrass you in any way. We just want to know how to pray for you. Come on. Why not a revival in Mount Prospect? Why not tonight? Just say a prayer for the people standing around you. They may need somebody to pray for them. Pray for the wonderful staff you have here at the church. Just lift them up to the throne of God. Pray for the church. All these, these hooks that you're putting out, these, the series, the video series, the, the, the new and better nursery, all these things that are just kind of made to attract folks to the kingdom of God. Pray for your church. If you live in the area and you don't have one, ask God if this would be the one for you. In a moment... Uh, our service is going to conclude as the pastor is led. Let me say this to you. If you couldn't quite bring yourself down here, I understand. I really do. Come talk to one of us after the service. We'd just be honored to pray for you. Answer your questions. Welcome you into the kingdom of God. I'm going to meet you here tonight. I'm going to get ready to go out to the table and sit down. So if I don't meet you here tonight, my prayer is one day... I will see all of you at the gates of heaven. And I pray that God will be with you until that day. Thank you, God.